private myths, public dreams. The universe is the sum of all things. If one recognises his identity with this unity, then the parts of his body mean no more to him than so much dirt, and death and life, end and beginning, disturb his tranquility no more than the succession of day and night. Xiangzu. Back in the day, people didn't count on the world being self-sustaining or autonomous. They held a mythologically informed view that the world and its creatures relied on them for its continuance, and that all relationships were harmonised when they were reciprocal and mutually beneficial. They saw themselves as custodians, not owners, in a world that was vibrantly alive, not merely a storehouse of inert and untapped resources waiting to be exploited. An example. Modern astronomy says the daily rise and fall of the sun happens because the sun orbiting Earth spins on its axis every 24 hours. But the sunrise ceremonies of earlier people said the rise of the sun wasn't mere physics, but the result of human prayers and ceremonies rooted in gratitude and respect and thanks. If humans didn't do their part, the sun wouldn't rise in the morning. The same understanding of reciprocity and relationship is a hallmark of the rituals and myths of early human culture and some of today's surviving indigenous cultures. These rituals and prayers often accompanied plant harvesting and the culling of animals for their meat and fur. They were signs that people were conscious of and grateful to creatures for their sacrifice, or what some called their giveaway. But there are no such rituals today in the factory farms, the slaughterhouses, the hydroponic farms that turn animals and fruit and vegetables into products that fill our supermarket trolleys. And few in the globalised food system, be they farmers, meat packers or chefs at Michelin-starred restaurants, show any sign of being in a respectful relationship to the creatures they commodify for our appetites. The same could be said of us, the consumers, who live in ignorance of what's done to the land, the rivers, the oceans and the creatures we feed on. A modern person might deride the myths of earlier times as quaint or ill-informed fantasies of a pre-scientific age. Perhaps the bigger truth is that modern science and information technologies have made us more certain of what we know but they've somehow diminished our imaginations and they've enfeebled our capacity for wonder. Again, Stephen Jenkinson offers this. Wonder is the sum of life's way of being itself, washing up on the shore of what you've known until now, leaving handfuls of treasure scattered amongst the small boulders of what you were sure of. You gather some of that treasure for no reason you can figure, without telling anyone, and you stash it under the pillow of your dreams for a time not quite upon you. Wonder is a willingness, decked out as a skill, to be on the receiving end of how vast the world always is, and how unlike your ideas of how it should be, it often is.
Old myths taught people respect and reverence for life and the natural world. Like poetry and parables, the old myths weren't so much about objective truth as much as pointers to a deeper wisdom about the nature of life and love and death and the unique burden of being human. They grew from our longing and our wonder. They embodied the distilled wisdom of our ancestors passed down through time. When our forebears gazed into the night sky, they confected stories of hunting and love and tragedy and conquest and the deeds of heroes and villains and gods, all guided by belief in a pervading moral order. These people were conscious of their mortality and they made counter-narratives to infuse death with hopeful meanings. The Neanderthals, for example, buried their human and animal companions with great care, often bestowing them with elaborate grave gear, such as weapons and food and trinkets, for their long journey after death. The dreaming of Australia's indigenous people is also a parable about life and death and the gods and their intuition for the hidden world lying behind the physical one. In this respect, myth-making was our attempt to peer into the unknown, into the great heart of silence, and to create meaning from mystery. The perennial myth that came out of staring into the void was the story of a divine realm more powerful and perfect and whole than our own. But mythology isn't theology. The ancients didn't see their gods or the divine as separate or metaphysical. They felt that gods, humans, animals and nature were inseparable and that we were all participating in the same drama. When people spoke of the divine, they were usually talking about an aspect of the mundane, says Karen Armstrong in her very fine book, A Short History of Myth. She says, The very existence of the gods was inseparable from that of a storm, a sea, a river, or from those powerful human emotions, love, rage, or sexual passion, that seemed momentarily to lift men and women onto a different plane of existence, so that they saw the world with new eyes. Enacting these myths through elaborate rituals gave people ways to experience themselves in ways that reminded them of their forgotten divinity, Choreographed dancing, chanting, sacrifices and pilgrimages were ways for people to recall and re-embrace their divinity and to help them cope with the human predicament. But we're no longer a myth-making people. Why this is so is hard to say, but in a post-religious scientific age, one result is that we have no stories to bind or carry us on our journey to the grave and beyond. If Eden's story is a tale of how our unique capacity for thought and knowledge separated us from nature and its creatures, then our forgotten capacity for myth-making has compounded our estrangement. We've become strangers in a strange land, lonely, thinking animals living in the world, but not fully of it. And so we're now homeless, which makes living and dying well a hard and sorry business for all of us.